0: For today, again, uh, happy new year. When you start a new year, uh, a lot of us, I'm sure, many of you are probably looking ahead. You're thinking about this coming year. You're thinking about things that you'd like to change. You have hopes for the year. You have aspirations for 2023. Some of you, I know this has become popular for a lot of, for a lot of Christians, and honestly, even outside of, of um, church world, some people choose like a word for the year. This is the word I'm going to focus on and look for and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, some of you have set goals. maybe you call them resolutions. maybe that's become a bad word. it's so fraught, so you just call them goals for the year. But a lot of us have these ideas. here's where we 're going for the year. I don't have anything like that, but what I do have is something I 've come across over the last few weeks. there's a scripture passage that caught my attention. And I heard this verse went back and read it, and it really, it spoke to me, and it's intersected with a lot of things that I think God's been kind of trying to show me personally, and so I thought that for me personally, this is going to be my verse, my, my scripture for this year, for 2023, and so I thought this morning, since I had no idea how many people would be here, I'd just write this sermon for myself. And so you're here, and so you get in on this. Is my verse for 2023, and you get to hear me kind of process through it a little bit. Sound fun? So you're going to look inside my mind. That's a little scary, but it'll be okay. Um, here's, Here's what it is we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And what I want to do is I want to share this verse, and honestly, this is not just for me. I hope as I walk through this verse with you and look at some things, some truths that I see, and some questions that I have that I look at this and I think I'm going to be wrestling with some questions from this scripture this year. I hope in my prayer is that maybe for you this will ignite something in you as well. That maybe you'll see something in this passage that in the way God's speaking to me that it will speak to you as well. And maybe it doesn't become like this is your theme or your verse for the year, but at the very least for today will capture something and help you to think about something maybe in a way you haven't in the past. So 2 Corinthians um, the verses that I'm going to be looking at are 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 it's the end of the chapter verses 16 through 18 if you would read along with me if you don't have a bible there should be a hardback bible um, under the seat in front of you and it's on page 966 in that hardback bible if you want to follow along 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 so it says so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. All right, so as we get into this passage, and, and I just want to set some context for you because that's just three verses out of this big letter, and, and on their own, they might not fully make sense. So here's what you need to know. Um, 2 Corinthians, what in your Bible is called 2 Corinthians, is actually a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it's actually, from what we understand, what, what church or biblical scholars tell us, it's actually the fourth letter, that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's called 2 Corinthians because two of the four letters don't survive, but two of the letters were preserved. Um, and so in this fourth letter that Paul writes, Paul planted this church in the, in the city of Corinth, and then he left, and he heard about some things that were going on. He wrote a letter back to him, heard some more things, wrote back, and had several correspondence. And actually this letter, from reading the letter and what we understand, he had actually gone and visited them, this church in Corinth. And they've had all kinds of problems, and if you read the letter, which in your Bible is called 1 Corinthians, you, you read that this church in Corinth was having a lot of problems, we'll just say it that way, and Paul's trying to help them out. And he's saying, look, here's the gospel, and here's the truth of the gospel, and here's what this should look like in everyday life as you live as a community together following the gospel, and here's how you can fix some of the problems that are there. But he goes and he visits And what we find from 2 Corinthians, he goes and he visits, and the people there, or some people there, have almost like turned against Paul. And not just turned against Paul, but now they've turned against the gospel and the truth that he's been preaching. And they're criticizing him. And they're saying he has no and should have no authority over them to be speaking to them. Because when you look at his life and what his life has been like, there's no reason that he should be able to come to them and tell them how they should live. Now, at this point in Paul's life, when he writes this, he's been a Christian for about, about twenty years. If you go back and you read the book of Acts, that's a lot of Paul's story of how he becomes a believer, and then he has some time where he trains and he apprentices, and then he goes out and he starts planting churches. And at this point, when he's writing 2 Corinthians, he's been out, wa- not wandering, but traveling around, planting churches in different cities for over a decade. At this point. And in that time, he's been through a lot, like a lot of difficult, like what we would call almost tragic circumstances. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he details in in chapter 11, if you want to flip over just a couple pages, in chapter 11, he describes this, what his life has been like, In the past decade, as he's been traveling around planting churches, listen to how Paul describes his life, starting in verse 24 of chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's like, look, my life has been really, really hard. Okay, and he's not asking for sympathy when he writes this. He's just trying to express to them this is what it's been like for him to go out on mission and to try to tell other people about the gospel. And yet, people in Corinth have flipped this, have twisted this, have turned this against him and are saying, well, if all that's true about you, then why should we believe you? Because if you were really following God, if you were really an apostle or a messenger from God, wouldn't your life be better? Wouldn't you have power over all those difficulties? Shouldn't you? If you're really blessed, then why do you have all these problems in your life? And so 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes to this church to say to them, look, I love you guys and everything that I've gone through. And the reason he lists, look at this is what my life has been like. And all of this pain and all of this suffering is because of the truth of the gospel. And because I love you, this church that I planted, I love you so much, I'm willing to go through this. I'm willing to put up with all of this abuse, with all of this pain, because I love you. I want you to hear this truth. He's gone through all this pain. Through all this hurt, now he's being rejected, he's being tur- they're, they're turning their backs on him. And yet, and yet, with all that being true, all the difficulty, all the pain, all the betrayal, Paul's message is still a message of hope. Look at verse 18. This is how this passage starts so we do not lose heart in spite of all that paul says all that stuff we he's talking about himself and his traveling companions but we do not lose heart we still have hope so here's the question i want to look at this morning just in this brief passage how is that possible How is that possible? How can Paul, who's gone through all this turmoil, all this trouble, just to be able to share the gospel, and then the people he shares the gospel with turn on him, how can he still have hope? Because we say, yeah, but it's worth it all if just some people believe, but he's like, yeah, I went through all that, and now it's not even seen. How can he still have hope? And then, of course, that maybe is an interesting academic question to talk about a guy who's been dead for 2,000 years. Here's the bigger question for us. Does Paul's hope and the source of his hope have an impact for us today? Does the reason he has hope, in spite of all his horrible circumstances, does that apply to us in 2023? Can we have hope in spite of or in the midst of our own circumstances? Because I know, I know that some of you are going through really difficult circumstances. And we love it's New Year's, New Year, New You, New Year's a blank page, all that kind of stuff. But the problem with all that is, when the clock struck midnight, none of that, those circumstances just automatically changed in your life. What was true yesterday is still true today, even if you're putting a different digit at the end of your calendar. Is it possible, even in those circumstances, is it possible for us to still have hope? So what I see in this passage from Paul, why does he have hope? I see three contrasts that he draws, three contrasts that give him hope in spite of and actually, in some ways, even because of his difficult circumstances. So I just want to look at these three contrasts together. The first one is in verse number 16. Why does Paul have hope? The first contrast is this, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Even though, Paul says, our outer self is decaying, our inner self is being renewed. So this is the first principle. If we think of hope, if, the purpose, if, if our hope is based in external success, whether, whatever that looks like, whether it's financial, whether it's our physical health, whether it's popularity or acclaim, whatever success looks like, external success looks like for you, we're going to be disappointed. Because what Paul is pointing out here is all those external things will fade away. While our outer self is wasting away, meaning all those things that we think will bring us happiness and joy and peace eventually will fade away. The greatest thing that you put all your hope in, this is always like, this is the week after Christmas, and so you guys are all much more mature than this, but if there were little kids here, none of you are, you're so mature, none of you fall into this trap, but so you can just imagine what for a little kid. Okay, not us, not us mature adults, but for little kids, Christmas is looking forward to getting stuff with the idea that if they get that stuff, it's going to make everything better. If I just get that thing, that's the one thing. I have to have that thing, and when I get it, I'll be happy, right? And the day after Christmas, they have five new things that will make them happy. Right? I'm talking to parents now who know exactly what this is about. You bought that thing because it was the thing and they got it and the next day it's broken. Or it's just, well, what if there's another one that goes with it? Did you know? I need to upgrade it. And, um, not adults. Adults do not do that. Okay? Adults buy one iPhone for life. Adults are set. When adults buy a car, that's the car they're going to drive for the rest of their life. Because adults know a thing is not going to bring them happiness. Adults know a promotion will not fulfill their life. Adults know a relationship won't transform them into happy people. Okay, somebody knows, Paul knows, Paul knows, we'll just say Paul, Paul's the adult in the room, and Paul says our outer self, all those outer, exterior, those things that we believe are the things that are going to make us happy, eventually they fade. Sometimes, as Christians, I'm talking to Christians now, sometimes Christians want to believe what's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is this. If you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, he's going to give you all these material or physical rewards, and they'll make you happy because you'll get the stuff you want. And the prosperity gospel is is usually, is actually what it does, is it views Jesus as the means to an end. That there's stuff that will make us happy, there's things in this world that can make us happy, and we use Jesus to get to them. And if we get that stuff, then we'll be happy. And the prosperity gospel teaches that if you're a true believer... If you actually have faith, it will show because people will look at your life and you'll be happier, you'll be more successful, you'll be rich. If you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. Paul says that's, that's not it. That totally misses the mark. In fact, that's what the the people who have turned against Paul in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, were exactly what they were saying. Paul, we look at your life and it's a mess. You can't possibly have faith. You can't possibly be a follower of Jesus because if you were, everything would be good. Paul says, look, everything you see, everything on the outside is wasting away. That's the way the world works. We live in a broken world. Things decay. But it's okay because the point is not what you see on the outside. The point is what's going on inside of me. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. The blessing, the blessing of following Jesus isn't the transformation of our circumstances, it's the transformation of us in our circumstances. It's the way God works in us, in our hearts, in our character, through the difficulties we're going through. Following Jesus allows us, and this is crazy, and for most people this doesn't even make sense. Paul refers to it as a peace that passes human or goes beyond human understanding, because this makes no sense. Because following Jesus allows us to have peace, to have joy, even in the most difficult circumstances. To be renewed to have our hearts brought back even though there's pain and that pain is real even though there's difficulty that difficulty is real but because of god's love speaking to us in our hearts our inner self our true selves are renewed are brought back to life, are given hope. Now, if you're going through something that's really, really difficult financially, relationally, physically, that can at times sound like a cop-out. I understand that. And I I will say this. The prosperity gospel, the idea that we use Jesus to make our lives better, that's, that's garbage. But, God does, and he can, at times, do miraculous things. He does, at times, change circumstances. He does. He does heal. He can deliver financially. He can and he does restore broken relationships. God can and will do that. But whether he does or not is actually, maybe this might sound surprising, but it's actually less important to the hope we have. Our hope is not that God will change our circumstances. And here's why that's not as important. It's the next contrast. Look at verse 17. For, because this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's what Paul's saying. Our suffering is temporary. But our glory, believers in Jesus, our glory will be eternal. Now, I want to stop and say that this is probably, verse 17 is probably the hardest phrase in this whole passage, light momentary affliction. Because I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that for almost everybody here, if you're thinking about the hardest thing that you're going through right now, The most difficult part of your life right now, whether it's relational or physical or financial, whatever it is, that none of you would describe it as light, momentary affliction. Right? When we're in the middle, or even at the beginning, (laughs) of really difficult hardship, none of us views it or thinks of it as light and momentary. And it, it, it is real. Our pain is real, and our suffering is real. So why does Paul describe it as light, momentary affliction? And remember, Paul, when he says this, remember what his circumstances are. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. And now he's had his, this, this church turn their backs on him, turn on him. And he's willing to describe that as light, momentary affliction. Affliction. How can he call that light? Well, he says it in the verse. It's because of the contrast. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul believes that there's something so much greater, so much greater than what he's currently going through. He believes there's a glory, a glory that is promised to those who trust in Jesus. Look above, um, about five verses up, verse 13. Paul says this, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, meaning, They believe the gospel and so they're sharing it with others because they believe this gospel. They have to share it with them. Knowing, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Because of the gospel. And because of the promise of the gospel, Paul believes that God has promised something so much greater, so much greater than any suffering, any pain, any difficulty, he could be experiencing here and now. Paul's not saying, whatever you're going through, he's not saying it's not real. He's not saying it doesn't hurt. He's just saying it cannot compare to the promise that we have in Jesus. It's beyond all comparison. It's the promise of a shared glory. Now, what is glory? Glory is a a royal majesty is the best definition i could find to describe it because glory means this we who are believers we who are trusting in jesus in his death his burial and his resurrection will one day when he returns reign with him see the promise of the new testament the promise of scripture is that god's going to take this broken world he's going to fix it he's going to put it all right And that those of us who believe in him, those of us who are trusting in him, will not just get to live in that new restored world, but we will rule in that new world with him. We will be co-rulers. We will receive glory. We will receive majesty. We will reign alongside him in a new and restored world, a world free from pain, World free from suffering, and we get to rule with him in that world. And Paul says, "With that being true, if I believe in that, if that is true, if that, if God is, because God's promised that, and if I believe that that is true, that is so good, that is so beautiful, that is so incredible. That how can anything right now compare to that?" And in fact, in fact, Paul actually goes a step further, okay? And this is where we can go, okay, I can kind of see where he's going, but so then, of course, he has to push it even a step further because Paul says not just that that that's better than what we're going through right now, but but even these circumstances right now, this pain, this turmoil, this hurt, this persecution is actually what is preparing us, is preparing us for that future glory. Here's how he says it. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That it's actually in suffering in some way that God gets us ready to share in His glory. Which, if we'll step back, as crazy, as, as, as illogical as that may sound, actually starts to make sense when we recognize this. How did Jesus move into that glory? He came to earth. He, he had all authority. He had all glory. He set it aside. He came to earth. It's what we just talked about at Christmas during the Advent season. He put aside his glory. He set aside his perfect i mean he didn't set aside his perfection but he set aside his full i'm gonna say this wrong and i'm trying to be so theologically correct and i can't even get the words out because i'm trying to be so correct so let's just say it this way jesus came to earth okay and he became a human being and he took on frailty he took on humanity and he suffered and he went through pain he was tortured he was beaten he was killed And through that suffering, he showed his glory because he defeated death. He rose again in victory over death. The invitation to us when we believe that is to join him in that victory over death. The part we don't like as much, but it's true, is that in joining him, we're also asked to and invited to join him in that suffering. And we live a life, we live a life, sometimes, often, of suffering, of pain, of hurt, but we know and we have hope that that suffering, that pain, and that hurt is preparing us, is shaping us to be more and more like our Savior. I love this this word theologians use to describe this kind of life. They call it a cruciform life. Cruciform, shaped like the cross. That as we suffer, as we go through pain, we're being shaped to be more and more like our Savior. And our suffering is preparing us to join with Him. To join with Him in glory. How how then do we live with those truths in mind? If God's working on our inner selves and, and he's preparing us through our light momentary affliction for an eternal weight of glory, how do we live now in the in-between? There's glory promised to us in the future, but we're not there yet. So how do we do we live? And this is what I love about Paul. The third contrast we're going to see is we could call it an exhortation, an invitation. We could call it a command. But what I love about Paul when he writes, he always, he always starts with, here's a promise. Here's a truth. Here's something you need to believe. If you believe that, then live this way. So we go to Paul a lot of times when we read, oh, Paul says do this, do this, do this, do this. But we sometimes separate that from here's the truth. Believe this truth. Hear this promise. So hear the promise, if you're a believer in Jesus, you will one day reign with him in glory. And that the pain you're going through now is preparing you for an even more beautiful experience of glory in the future. With that being true, what do we do? Here's the third contrast, verse 18, as we look not, so what do we do with this? We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's what Paul says, third contrast. Instead of focusing on what we see, we need to be paying more attention to what we don't see. Now, I want to clarify, okay, when Paul is talking here about seen and unseen, okay, Paul is not, he's not contrasting the physical world around us right now in the spiritual world I mean he does talk about inner and outer but this specific what he's talking about here when he's talking about seen and unseen is not about physical and spiritual as if as if that sounded really like as if I didn't mean it that way but he's not saying that there's a there's an evil bad physical world and we need to separate ourselves from that we need to go live in a monastery somewhere, separate ourselves from the whole world, and just meditate all day long and focus on just trying to get our inner self connected to God and just we just focus on this and ignore all this. That's not what he's saying, okay? In fact, there are other passage in the, passages in the New Testament where Paul directly refutes that line of thinking because there were people in Paul's day who were teaching that. They were teaching the physical world is evil, it's bad. We need to escape from the physical into this just solely spiritual, metaphysical, like, world of the mind. That's not what he's saying. What Paul's talking about when he talks about seen and unseen is he's talking about seen is right here, right now, the present. Unseen is the future because we can't see the future. There's something ahead that we don't see right now. It's promised to us. God has told us, here's what's coming in the future. You're going to reign with me in glory. We don't see it. We can't feel it. And so Paul says the seen things, they're transient. They're right here, they're right now, and they're going to go away. The unseen, the future, is eternal. There is something coming that will last forever. And it's so tempting for us, it's so tempting for us to lean into and to trust in what we can see. It's so tempting to us to focus and prioritize what is right here and right now. Because it's here. I can trust in it because I can see it. Isn't that the way we think? That's how our minds work. I won't believe it unless I see it for myself. I have to see it for myself. And Paul says there's something so much better and so much more lasting. Even though you can't see it right now, it's better than what you can see our 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 external world our the world around us focuses if you look at these three here's the three contrasts can we hit that slide real quick the three contrasts outer inner temporary eternal seen and unseen our our world around us Everything you hear, everything that that you take in focuses on this. The outer, the temporary, and the scene. What's right here, right now. And I don't want to just say it's out there. We, ourselves, as humans, this is where we lean. This is where we go in our minds. What can I trust? What can I put my hope in? What I can see. The things that are around me right now. What can I do? What can I control in my own circumstances? How can I make my world better? What can I see that I can make my world better? The problem with that is the more we focus on what's right in front of us, the less peace we have from day to day. Let me give you a metaphor that I think will help you explain this a little bit. Um, I don't know if you remember learning to drive most i'm looking most of you can drive or are old enough to be allowed to drive i don't know if you actually can but but most of you are of the age where you could right and so you may remember does anybody remember driver's education anybody in here remember driver's education a few of you some of you have totally forgotten but i hope that's because you internalize the lessons and you're good to go not because you're like i get in the car and i'm like i have no idea what i'm doing but i'll push on this pedal so anyway in driver's education one of the lessons they taught us and this was hard for me to learn but it was really really important lesson most people when they first start driving their inclination is to look at what's right in front of them partly there's all these instruments on the panel and there's the speedometer and there's the you know the um, the gears and all that kind of stuff and you want to be looking right there and so then you're just barely looking but also you're so afraid of i got to be paying attention to what's right in front of me so i don't hit something but What happens when you're driving if you're just looking at what's right in front of you? What we learned in driver's training was the more you're looking right in front of you, the more you're just going to swerve all over the place because you're constantly going to be trying to correct based on what's right in front of you. That the better way to drive, the safer way to drive, is to actually look farther out. To look at a point farther away. And when you look at a point farther away... You're still able to see other things. This is You train your vision to be able to see not just the point farther away, but the things in between. But you don't overreact to every single little twist because you're looking at a point farther. And so you actually drive much straighter by looking farther out. Does this make sense? Do you remember this? This is how you drive. You just may have forgotten it over the past years since you took driver's education. But when we focus right in front of us, we're swerving constantly side to side. When we emotionally or in our own lives look at just what is right in front of us. Here's what it is today. This is the thing I've just got to fix for today. Here's how I'll solve my problems today. We're going to constantly be pinging back and forth. And our emotions are going to be going all over the place and our lives are going to be going side to side because right now I need to fix this and so I'm over here. But oh wait, it didn't work. I've got to go over here. And we're just going to be going side to side. We need to, Paul, is this what Paul is saying? We need to train our eyes, not just to be looking at what's right in front of us. We need to train our eyes, train our hearts, train our minds to look farther out, to see the big picture, to look farther ahead, to say there's a glory promised for me, and I'm on a mission, God sent me on a mission, and I need to stay focused on that. And do I see the things in between? Absolutely, I do. But I'm not going to overreact along the way because I know there's something greater up ahead. And if I can keep my eyes focused on that, I can experience a deeper joy and a deeper peace in the journey. So here's the question I said at the beginning. This is the scripture I want to be looking at this year. And I see some truths, and I think these are beautiful truths but i have some questions and i don't have a clean neat tidy answer to these questions because i have 364 more days to be working through this so here's the question what does this look like what does it look like to focus on the things that are unseen how can i because and i believe this is totally intentional by paul The thing about something that you can't see, you can't look at it. Right, Paul? So I think he's using this language on purpose. How do you look at something you can't see? How do I focus when everything inside me, everything outside of me is screaming for my attention on this? Look here, look right now. Look at these problems in your life. Look at these distractions. Look at this go for comfort here. All of it is screaming out to me, look at this, give your attention here. How do I look past that? How do I look out further into what's unseen? And I've been working through this and I literally literally made a list of possible, maybe it means this. Maybe it means for, for you, for me, for all of us, Maybe it means getting rid of social media because of the constant distraction. Maybe it means giving more generously because money is such a control thing. Maybe it means serving in the church outside of my comfort zone because that requires me to step outside of what I believe I can or should be doing. Maybe it means creating an intentional prayer time or an intentional prayer routine Not just once a day, but throughout the day. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Maybe it means memorizing more scripture to get in my mind, looking forward and what's true. Maybe it means there's a specific sin in my life or in your life that we need to kill. We just need to put this sin to death, do whatever it takes to fight against it. Maybe it means prioritizing Christian community to surround myself more frequently and more regularly with other believers who will point me ahead And help me stop looking right in front of me. I don't know. Maybe it means all those things. Maybe it means none of those things. Here's what I do know 100%. The unseen thing that Paul is talking about here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that because of God's love, he sent Jesus to come into this world to take my sin to die for me And then he rose again in victory, and if I believe in him, if I trust in that sacrifice, then one day I will be reigning with him in glory. That's the truth. And whatever that means for this year, that's where I need to be putting my hope. Whatever habits, whatever practices, whatever I need to do to train my eyes on that truth, that's the truth. That's the hope. How does Paul have hope in the midst of all his circumstances? It's because of the gospel. Can we have hope in the midst of our circumstances? Only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray together. We're going to share communion together. Um, So if you would, bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your promise. The promise that we have that one day we will reign with you in glory. God, I know in my own heart there are so many other voices, other messages, other just, just constant distractions, I'm vying for my time, vying for my attention, and my own internal voice is the worst one of them, but God, I want to be focused on your truth. I want to hear your voice. I want to look ahead to your promise. I want to put my hope in you. My prayer today for myself, for everyone here for Trailhead Church is that as we step into this new year even though our circumstances aren't changing that you would be changing us and that we would turn our eyes to the things we cannot see and that you would work in our inner being renew us, renew our faith and enliven our hope. In your name I pray. Amen.